All right, so, um, so I played college baseball. I wasn't that great. It was D3, whatever, okay. Um, but I was a freshman, I was out in left field, and I hear our third baseman drop an expletive loudly, and he started running toward the bench. If any of you are unfamiliar with baseball, that's not normal. It's not something you normally do in the middle of a game. His good friend, who was our DH, was sitting on the bench, and he had just gotten knocked out. Like, knocked out, knocked out. By the pitcher on our team who just got pulled. So said pitcher had gotten pulled because he wasn't pitching well. It's a doubleheader. This was the first game. He packed up his stuff and started walking away. And the guy on the bench said, you know, great attitude, Pat. Way to lead the team. He was a senior. And he didn't like that, turned around and knocked him out. So, so much for the testimony of the Christian college baseball team, you know, Wheaton College for Christ and his kingdom. That's our motto. Um, that wasn't the highlight of our team culture for that year or ever in the history of the team. But speaking of culture, every church, every team, every, you know, every group of people has a culture, right? A legalistic church certainly has a culture. But so also does a warm, loving church family where grace seems to be in the atmosphere for people to breathe when they enter into that community. So we're doing this series on gospel culture, and I told you back in 2016 we did a series under this banner. I think it was an eight-part series, and it was inspired by this book, The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ. So I'm going to quote this a few times in this series, I think a few times this morning. Um, we're going to have copies of this next week if you want to pick one up. Um, they should be here by next Sunday. Um, so Ray Ortland Jr., Jr. writes this so that you get an idea of what are we talking about? What is gospel culture? What does this mean? He writes, the gospel does not hang in midair as an abstraction. By the power of God, the gospel creates something new in the world today. It creates, just, it creates not just a new community, but a new kind of community. Gospel-centered churches are living proof that the good news is true, that Jesus is not just a theory, but is real as he gives back to us our humanness. In its doctrine and culture, words and deeds... Such a church makes visible the restored humanity only Christ can give. Then he goes on and says, but if we do not show beauty in the way we treat each other, then in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of our own children, we are destroying the truth we proclaim. It's in our churches that the gospel is field-tested for real life. If people want to know what the gospel creates, are they being unfair to look to a church? I don't think so. And I think he's saying that on good authority because Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another, by the manner of your relationships and community. So we know this is true, right? We've seen the ugly dynamics that can undermine the truth of the gospel. But I hope all of us have also seen the beautiful dynamics that can adorn the truth of the gospel. 
the relational dynamics then that can adorn and kind of lift up the truth of the truth and show the beauty of it. So the point of this series is that we, Bethel, if this is your church home, we need to take ownership of our part in cultivating a gospel culture here at Bethel. So cultivating something means that you are seeking to improve and prepare. You know, if it's an agricultural metaphor, you're plowing, you're fertilizing. Why? In order to raise crops that feed your soul. They're good. Just feed your body. Okay, so we're looking for spiritual fruit that will feed souls. Sometimes you have to loosen and dig soil and and get rocks out and so forth so that plants can grow. Um, So the gospel is good news for bad people, right? God has been, he's not dealt with us according to our sins, what they deserve. We all deserve to be condemned for our sin. We've all broken our own standards, let alone God's standards. None of us has kept even the 10 commandments. Love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, we haven't kept that. So what do we do? We can't climb a ladder to heaven, atone for our own sins. God comes down to rescue us through Christ. He dies on the cross in our place for our sins. We come with empty hands. We sung of this. And he fills our hands with his grace. He doesn't need anything. He wants to give us grace and forgiveness and peace, reconciliation with himself. So if you turn from your sin, from going your own way, trying to be your own little God, and build your own little kingdom, and you trust in Jesus, clinging to him in faith, you become a Christian. You're made new. So that's the gospel, and that gospel takes root in individual lives, and people join together in local churches, and it creates a gospel culture, a gospel gospel community. So that's what we're cultivating here on a regular basis. We're all farmers now. So series is going to be five weeks, I believe. Um, the first one, Philippians 4, 4 to 7. What kind of culture do we want to cultivate here? What kind of people does God want to make of us? Well, in Philippians 4, 4 to 7, we're going to see three things. A, a joyful people, a gentle people, and a prayerful people. Okay? And then we're going to have to give some qualifications like, wait a second, We need to make sure that we realize what this doesn't mean because it's easy to kind of get confused a little bit on some of this, and then we're going to talk about how. So five points. Let's dive right in. Point number one, a joyful people. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So he says, again, I will say. In other words, I'm going to keep on saying this, Philippians. Like I'm going to keep beating this drum. I'm going to keep reminding you of this. He already said it in 3.1. He's saying it again here. And he says, I'm going to say it again. And we're going to need to hear this again and again and again. But we should stop and just make sure we know what we're talking about here. What is this joy that Paul is talking about here? This is clearly not merely circumstantial joy. I mean, who doesn't rejoice when everything goes their way, right? But circumstantial joy is so very fragile, isn't it? And circumstantial joys, you know, there's plenty of things that we desire to happen, but they're not guaranteed. So it could be kept from you. It could be blown up easily by circumstances or death or whatever else. 
So circumstantial joy is fragile. Paul instead wants the joy of the Philippians. He's writing this letter to them. He wants their joy to be in Jesus, in the Lord, so that their joy is deep and durable, not shallow and quickly fading or subject to getting blown up by circumstances. So he wants their joy. God wants our joy to be founded on the granite foundation of God's character and work and promises all mediated to us through Jesus. If your joy is in the Lord, then you can rejoice always because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His love doesn't change. And nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Okay, so, all right, our joy needs to be in Jesus. But what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? Like, is it just what we do on Sundays here when we sing, you know, happy songs and, and, you know, the upbeat songs? Is that what it is? Well, that would be part of it. We can throw, throw around that phrase, you know, rejoice in the Lord. But have you ever stopped to ask what that means? Like, what am I actually being commanded to do? I think it's sometimes easy for very familiar commands or lines to just almost be, we think we know what they mean because we've heard them so much, but wait, 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 I don't, what, am, what, what does that mean? How do I do that? Well, let me give one example from the book of Philippians the life of the Apostle Paul, and then two examples from life. But this is just, in a sense, kind of priming the pump because we need to keep wrestling with this like for the rest of our lives. What does this look like in all the different aspects of my life um, and so forth? And that's going to change because new things are going to arise. So, Lord, help me to rejoice in you always in this or that circumstance. Um, I mean, Paul did it with, at the end of, of Philippians, he could be content in all circumstances because he learned the secret of contentment, right? So anyway, one example, that wasn't the example, sorry. Um, One example from the book of Philippians. If you look back in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Paul's in prison for preaching the gospel, house arrest in Rome. I mean, that could put a damper on your joy, huh? But Paul knows that he can trust God's providence, He knows what Jesus said as far as like setting his expectations. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 10 to 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So that was true. Paul knew that, so he could rejoice while he's in prison. But also, this whole house arrest thing has already borne some encouraging fruit. So he's already been able to share the gospel with the soldiers that he's been kind of like chained to. And word's gotten around to like the whole Praetorian Guard. So prison ministry opened up. So hey, I'm rejoicing. Others also have seen Paul suffer with joy and boldness, and it's emboldened them. Like, hey, we don't have anything to fear. What's the worst thing that happens? We go to prison. Paul's doing okay, and he's saying to live as Christ and to die as gain. So what's the worst thing they do? Kill us. Well, 
then I'd be with Jesus. So, others are emboldened to preach the gospel without fear. 114. So this is rejoicing in the Lord despite some pretty crummy circumstances because of what God is doing in and through it all. So that's the one example from Philippians. Two examples from life. Just, again, these are kind of relatively generic, but you could imagine this happening in your life, and this is just to prime the pump because we need to wrestle with what this would look like in whatever our circumstances are. So let's say you get some bad results from a medical test. And this isn't hypothetical for some in the room. Let's say it's cancer or some other serious condition. That is horrible. You don't rejoice in the bad thing. You rejoice in the Lord. So who would want, you know, this negative test result? You can be sad as a Christian. You can be grieved as a Christian. But the question is, can you rejoice in the Lord? Yes. Haven't we seen it happen here at Bethel? We've seen it happen with Matthew Ward. We've seen it happen with Angie Ellsworth. We've also seen it when people have had that result and ultimately they pass away. We saw it with Barb Armstrong. We saw it with Shirley Booker. We saw it with Julie Barmore. These precious women died in faith, rejoicing in the Lord, even though certainly they probably all would have loved to have less pain and longer life. But here's the point. Death has lost its sting. We don't face cancer without hope or whatever the condition is. This life is not all there is. So you can say, thank you, Jesus, and there can be rejoicing in the Lord. Second example from life. Let's say you lose your job. Again, that's terrible. Nobody wants that. It's concerning. It can kick up all kinds of anxieties and fear. But can you rejoice in the Lord? Yes, so imagine, just again, hypothetical, but this is how this could go. Lord, sure didn't want to lose my job, but this is an opportunity for me to trust you. This is an opportunity for me to see you provide. It's an opportunity for me to grow in trust and even to see, you know, maybe my identity was too much in my job. If that was the case, would you show that to me? Lord, I want my identity to be in Jesus. And then, you know, even if this impoverishes me, help me be anchored by the reality that nothing and no one can take the riches of your mercy and grace away from me. I am rich in your love for me and your mercy no matter what happens. Familiar with that little book, Minor Prophets, um, that book Habakkuk? At the end of Habakkuk, so he is facing some really hard circumstances, very scary, very hard, and it's coming. The Lord's told him. He's struggling to understand why, we, why God would orchestrate things in this way. He's wrestling with the Lord to the point where he, you know, why, why, why? But then he works through that with the Lord to the point at the end of the book, he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the, yields yield no, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. I mean, I think I would 
in my own kind of natural condition, I would just probably hope for, but I can grip my teeth and hang on. And he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. How in the world can he say that? Well, God is his salvation. No one and nothing can take, no matter what hard things are coming, nothing can take God's past deliverance away from Habakkuk or from us. And similarly, as we head into the future, even if it's into a hard future, nothing and no one can take the promise of God's future faithfulness away from us. He is our shepherd. He will be with us. And he's going to lead us all the way home, and we're going to be with him forever. So certainly that was true of Habakkuk. For us on this side of the cross, Jesus took hell for us. There's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God justifies, who can condemn? Like we can rejoice. I mean, it's just so easy to be oriented to like a what have you done for me lately with God, isn't it? Spurgeon said it like this. He kind of nailed it. I mean, this is going to be a convicting message, but it's ultimately encouraging. So, and I'm totally convicted. Um, but he nailed it. He said, we're too prone to engrave our trials in marble and write our blessings in sand. So past deliverance, circumstances can't take that away. Future faithfulness of God for the rest of our lives. And at the end, no trials can take that away from us. If he didn't spare his only son, but graciously gave, us, gave him up for us all, how will he not also together with him graciously give us everything that we need to make it all the way home? Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. We're not going to hell anymore. We can rejoice in the Lord. So if this is our daily orientation, it's going to put any earthly lack or trial in perspective even the big ones, but also the petty annoyances and disappointments will be put in perspective. And man, don't we need that? Like, I am so guilty. So I, I love what Ray Ortland in here kind of exhorts us with, encourages us with. He says, we need a little cheerful defiance. So here, I'll read him, and he's, he's quoting a couple other people too, Augustine and Martin Luther. In the face of everything that would seem to rob us of God, this assurance builds into us a cheerful defiance. It does so in two ways. First, the hope of the gospel makes us cheerfully defiant toward every disappointment that we endure in this broken world. Augustine teaches us, you are surprised that the world is losing its grip, that the world has grown old. Think of a man, he's born, he grows up, he becomes old. Old age has its many complaints, coughing, shaking, failing eyesight, anxious, tired, terribly tired. A man grows old, he's full of complaints. The world is old, it's full of pressing tribulations. Do not hold on to the old man, the world. Do not refuse to regain your youth in Christ. Who says to you, the world is passing away, the world is losing its grip, the world is short of breath. Do not fear, your youth will be renewed as an eagle. Second, this is again Ortland, the hope of the gospel and triumph of our Savior makes us cheerfully defiant even toward our own sins and failures. I mean, that can steal your joy, can't it? But Martin Luther teaches us, when the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. 
For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. Cheerful defiance. So it's so easy to fixate, and I'm so guilty, and I've just been like, this whole week, thinking about how I can be so petty and stuck on this stuff, and I imagine I'm not the only one, on the challenges that we face or all that's not going as we'd hoped or all the ways that I've screwed up and failed and on and on, negativity, complaint, discouragement. We beat ourselves up. We beat other people up. We stew over the failure of others. We could use some gospel doctrine perspective that inspires a little cheerful defiance. For time, I won't tell you the little moment I had up on the top of the hill at Brandywine Creek. Creek. But you know what? You might need to just go out and meditate on this passage and get some perspective um, because it it helped. Um, It can help. All right. So this sermon is a series on gospel culture. Here's the point. What happens when a company of people join together who fight for their joy in Jesus and who help each other to do the same? Like, what happens when we see a little cheerful defiance in our brothers and sisters? That is a powerful, life-giving dynamic. And that defiantly cheerful people is also what this desperate world needs to see. And they're going to ask us for the reason for the hope that's within us. So, Lord, help us. Help us rejoice in you always. Like, let's pray with the Bible. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. Cause your joy to be our strength. Revive your people again that we may rejoice in you. Make us a joyful people by your mighty grace. Make us also point to a gentle people. Look at verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone the Lord is at hand. So what's this reasonableness? Well, it can also be translated forbearance or gentleness. In fact, gentleness is probably the best translation. Um, Other places where this word is used in the New Testament, just we'll look at them really quickly here. 2 Corinthians 10.1, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Same word. Or in 1 Timothy 3.3, he's talking about how an elder pastor must be not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. I think those are intentionally side by side and also after not violent. And then in Titus 3, Paul instructs Titus to remind the Christians in Crete to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And then James 3.17. We'll skip that one for now. So Christians should actually be known by their gentleness. I told you it was going to be a convicting Sunday. Now, again, this is aspirational, right? This is where we're headed, what we want to be, right? This is what we should long for God to cultivate in our lives, in our church, what we would pray that will characterize us as a church. Christians should be known by their gentleness. Let that sink in. I mean, I don't know. Have you been paying attention to the media the last, I don't know, like, long time? What you see characterized, I'm going to make something really careful here, so don't like, oh, what's he saying? Just listen to what I'm saying here. What you see characterized in right-leaning media, especially far right-leaning media, in what they embody, especially when they claim the name of Jesus, 
And what you see in left-leaning media, especially far left-leaning media, in how they characterize Christians is a far cry from this kind of Christ-like gentleness. Okay, that shouldn't surprise us too much. We're not supposed to be conformed to this world. And hey, newsflash, there's the world on the left and the right. Okay, anyway. Um, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're supposed to learn from Jesus, not from the prevailing culture, prevailing culture warriors, whether on the left or the right. We want to listen to Jesus who said, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I am gentle. Learn from me. So what is this gentleness that we're supposed to be known for? It's not weakness. It's not wimpiness. It is Christ-likeness. It's not taking matters into our own hands. It's trusting God and not being quarrelsome, not being violent, not loving a fight, but loving people. And if we have to, like, engage for the sake of the truth, certainly. But there is graciousness and a kind of settledness and peace in this gentleness. Again, this is a sermon in a series about gospel culture. So what happens when a company of people join together who aim at cultivating a gentle, Christ-like spirit? That would be a safe place a place of grace and peace, cultivated by grace and peace and giving grace and peace. And gentle Christ-likeness is also what this desperate, vindictive, angry, passive-aggressive, complaining, negative, harsh world needs to see. So Lord, help us. Calm our troubled souls by your grace and your peace. Help us to come to you and find rest for our souls and teach us what it means to be gentle in a Christ-like way. That we might be known for our Christ-like gentleness. And thirdly, a prayerful people. Do not be anxious about anything. Verse six, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I don't have to tell you, there's so many reasons for anxiety and fear and fretting and ruminating in our world today. Just look at the headlines, you know. You don't know if you go to a mall or a birthday party or to a school, if a shooting could take place. Geopolitical tensions are high and rising on many fronts. North Korea, China, ISIS, Russia, Iran, you know, etc. There's a precarious global economy, inflation, bank failures, etc. Natural disasters. All of this and more on the daily combine to disturb the world and disturb our souls. Is there a solid place to stand? Is there any solid footing? And then we read this passage and it can just seem impossible and out of touch like not only with all those world problems out there, but all the challenges and circumstances in our lives and relationships that can make this text seem like it's just craziness. Well, we're going to consider in a minute what it doesn't mean, but we also need to consider what it does mean. It could easily just 
view this even as like a burdensome command, like, oh, great, not only do I have all this anxiety I'm battling, but I'm already dealing, you know, I'm already dealing with the weight of beating myself up for all my failures to live up to my own and everybody else's expectations. Now I need to add this burden of not being anxious, which really just heaps more failure on me and I'm, you know, anxious about that. Like, thanks a lot, God. But what if this is intended to be a gift rather than a burden? What if this is intended to remove burdens rather than heap them on? What if this is intended to shoulder burdens rather than increase the weight? It's very similar to what Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. He doesn't want you to have to bear this alone all by yourself. You can't. He can. His shoulders are infinitely broad. Cast your cares on him. So God wants us to bring all of our fears and anxieties and burdens and needs and failures and struggles to him. Why? So he can give us his peace. He wants to give us his peace. And it's peace that passes understanding. And that peace is intended to guard our hearts and our minds. It isn't easy for our minds to spin and our hearts to just be all tied up in knots. God wants to give you peace to guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus, protect you. Like, how much do we need the peace of God to guard us from our restless ruminating? We sung, I give you my burden, you give me your strength. Like, do you mind if he does that? No. So why is it, like, we're all guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. Why do we stiff arm the Lord when he seeks to help us? Why do we ignore and avoid the Lord when he wants to give us grace and peace? Like A.W. Tozer, I think, said something like, worry and anxiety are kind of like praying to ourselves. What? Think about it. It's kind of similar to our tendency to run on our own strength, right? Like, why do we neglect time with God and word and in prayer? Well, I don't have time. Well, what if the grace of God that he wants to mediate to you through that time is like, gasoline for the car of your life. I don't have time to stop for gasoline. Float my car. You know, the car runs out of gas. What are you doing? Can't push the thing. So this is a series on gospel culture, right? Culture. So think with me. When we are filled with anxiety and that anxiety breaks out, which inevitably it does, what tends to happen? in your relationships, in how you operate at work when you're stressed out, in your marriages, in your parenting, in your friendships, with coworkers, on sports teams. Back to the opening illustration. What happens when we're not at peace? Inner turmoil tends to break out and create relational turmoil. But the opposite can happen when we are experiencing living in the peace of God. It's God's peace. He wants to lend it to us. I mean, Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then down in John 16, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So when this peace fills us, it guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What happens is, we become peacemakers. We can even absorb a little heat from somebody without giving it right back. 
A soft answer turns away wrath. So you're racked with anxiety. What to do? Test the Lord in this. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, it's good to be reminded that God is good and I don't deserve all this grace that he wants to give me and that he has given me in the past. Let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will take him at his word. Okay, Lord, prove it. Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The Lord is good. Still, there might be some resistance here. You know, the Bible, listen, the Bible's not simplistic. God is not unreasonable. He's loving, he's powerful. He's both willing and able to help. We see that over and over again. Let's test him in this for the peace of our own souls, the peace of our homes, the peace of our church, and ultimately the glory of the name of our Savior, who is the Prince of Peace. So all kinds of, you know, yeah, buts and what abouts and, you know, maybe some legitimate questions and also some cynicism can creep up in response to this text. So let me just take a minute to consider what this text doesn't mean. Point number four, rejoice in the Lord always. Let your gentleness be known to all. Do not be anxious for anything. Okay, first one, this rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord always does not exclude sorrow. How could it? Our Savior was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And Paul, who wrote this letter, is no simpleton. He didn't wear rose-colored glasses. He suffered more than most of us will ever suffer. And if his friend Epaphroditus, who was from Philippi, would have died because he was sick, he he brought this um, ministry from the Philippians to Paul in prison, and Paul was sending him back with the letter. If he would have died, Paul says in Philippians 2.27, I would have had sorrow upon sorrow. In the same letter, he says that. Paul also describes himself and those who served with him in 2 Corinthians 6.10 as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Or in 1 Peter, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 4, he writes of how Christians grieve when people, loved ones die, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. So, clear point, rejoicing in the Lord does not exclude sorrow. They can coexist. Secondly, gentleness does not exclude truth and justice or speaking the truth in love. Again, think Jesus, like speaking to the Pharisees with challenge and rebuke, or think of the Apostle Paul confronting Peter when he was acting like a hypocrite. But that doesn't mean that we can become quarrelsome and ornery. Let your gentleness be known to all. And thirdly, this peace does not, this peace that passes understanding, does not exclude all anxiety. Everybody awake still? This peace doesn't exclude all anxiety. What are you talking about? Because it says be anxious for nothing. Yes, it does. But this is the kind of anxiety that acts as if there is no God and as if he's abandoned us. There actually is a godly kind of anxiety. Why do I say this? Because the Bible says this. In Philippians 2, you might need to flip back there to believe it. Philippians 2, 20 to 21. Paul is giving, like commending a couple people. Epaphroditus is one of them, but Timothy is another. And he says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely anxious, concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Or in 1 Corinthians 12, 25, you don't have to turn there, but, you know, it's this body dynamic. And Paul says, things are ordered in such a way that there would be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care, anxiety for one another. 
So don't be anxious about anything does not mean that you need to be a stoic whose emotions are completely detached from all suffering or concern. No, 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 no. Like if you're a parent, you know you've got concern for your kids. And yes, it can get sinful, but it can also be righteous because you love them. And if you have brothers and sisters that you're ministering to, I'm sure the door of hope with Queenie, they've got concern for her. And that is loving concern, which is why they're praying for her and active in the way that they want to love her. So this is not simplistic. And these commands, therefore, are not unrealistic or superficial or out of touch with reality. So think about it this way. Like, if you just consider this as two options, like, we've got two paths to, to walk. One would be the grumbling and negativity people. Is that the people we want to be? Slow to listen, quick to speak and judge, oversimplify, caricature your opponents and exaggerate and hasty generalizations and assume the worst of everybody and you're anxious and fretful and you can't be alone with your thoughts and you spin on your mental hamster wheel and you're high strung and can't sleep and, oh, welcome to Bethel. Or the joyful, gentle, reasonable, peaceful people. Again, we're fighting for this. We're not going to have it constantly in some sort of magical mountaintop experience all the time. And it is a high bar, and it is convicting, and it can seem impossible. We're going to take steps, aren't we? Not down this road. We want to go down this road. This is like repent. Whoops, I'm going down the wrong way. Like Every day we're taking steps that will determine who we become individually and as a church. So this is aspirational. Don't you want to head in this direction? So the point of this convicting message, which I'm totally convicted, is not to beat us up or beat us down. The point is that God wants to build us up into the people he wants us to be, the people we want to be. Don't you want to be this kind of people? And the people the world desperately needs to see. What is your reputation? What is our reputation? What will be our reputation? What will we be known for? What a, what a people, what a community, what a society this would be if we were joyful and gentle and prayerful, peaceful. Who wouldn't want to spend time there? So this should inspire hope and longing, not cynicism, or burdens of guilt and hopelessness. Like, if anyone can experience these things, it's Christians because God's in the equation. Okay, how? I'm like, all right, I'm going to finish this because, yeah, I got a page and a half left. All right. Um, we rejoice in the Lord. The story that we're living in is not a tragedy. Yes, this world is full of tragedy, and our lives can be full of tragedy. We don't want to minimize the pain of it at all, but there is a hero and a rescue, and a renewal that's already begun, and there is actually a true happily ever after coming in this story. So this is not Shakespeare, you know, a tale told by an idiot. I'm not saying Shakespeare was an idiot, but in Hamlet, um, this world is not a tale told by an idiot filled with sound and fury signifying nothing. No, we have good news of great joy for all people. Every day, peace flows from the ultimate peace that we receive through Christ by his grace when we're reconciled to the Father, and he's for us and not against us. That's our story. We're not in some random, meaningless moment in the sun before we go back into the ground and feed the worms, repeat ad nauseum until the sun burns out. End of story. No. 
Paul mentions it. I passed over it. Did you notice that? Verse 5, the Lord is at hand. So we've talked about the gospel multiple times. We've sung about the gospel. But think about this. Like, the Lord is at hand. That could be temporally. He's coming back soon, which is true. It could also be spatially. He's near. That's also true. It's kind of hard to determine which one Paul means here. But the point is, we are not alone. God is with us. He's for us. We don't have to be quarrelsome and fight and fret and rage and manipulate and control as if we are just merely cosmic survivors. The suffering and struggle that fills our story is not meaningless, and it is not going to last forever. One day, the Lord is going to return. It's drawing near. He's near. And he's going to make all things new. And he's going to set everything to rights. And he's going to wipe away every tear. And there's not going to be any more mourning or crying or pain anymore. The Lord is at hand. We can rejoice. And that truth can calm our troubled souls. And it can cultivate a gentleness and a peace as we cast our burdens on the Lord and experience this peace that passes understanding, guarding our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to close with an illustration if the worship team wants to come up now while I'm reading this. So there's a, a biblical counselor named Brad Hambrick. He's a really insightful guy, and he writes this. He says, here is Paul's point. The current part of your story can be tense, and the whole of your story still be good. Paul isn't saying that your emotions should always remain as tranquil. Paul is saying that when something upsets you, like two friends feuding, don't let this change the overarching narrative of your life. Good books still have dark chapters. We can tell this is what Paul is doing by the two ways he introduces the command not to be anxious about anything. First, Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. In a chaos story, freaking out fits. In a good story, with an occasion of chaos, reasonableness fits. Paul is saying, don't let this moment define the story. Remember, God is in control. Notice this doesn't downplay the problem. It doesn't ask you to be unmoved. It does call you to, be, to remember you are in a good story being written by a good author. Paul isn't asking Christians to pretend bad and hard things don't exist. That's denial, not faith. Imagine this scene. My family's having dinner at a restaurant. A feud breaks out that is loud and intimidating. Our two young sons. What's the best thing for my sons to do? So something scary is happening around them. This is the big question of Philippians 4. Answer, talk with Papa. Ask, what's going on? Come close in the booth. As we talk, my calmness and assessment of the situation becomes more central than the people who are yelling. My boys can ask me anything they want. I'm here for them. That changes the story. Our engagement, in effect, guards their hearts and minds. Paul is reminding us that even amid troubling circumstances, which he doesn't ask us to downplay, staying conversationally connected to God stabilizes our emotions by reminding us of the larger good story of which this dark, scary part, or scary chapter is a part. In that sense, our real fears forge a bond between us and God, like my sons feel closer to me as their father when I help them navigate a scary situation. Lord, help, help us make it happen. In Jesus' name, amen.